central staircase uh, right through the roof. And um, McGee says, come on, and we grab a two and a half, and uh, we hit it from the window, and somehow I managed to have the aim to hit the uh, power box and send sparks about 300 foot in the air. And uh, Dave said, okay, we knocked it down enough. Let's go in and save stairs and do a search because there was a car in the driveway. Christmas morning, car in the driveway. You know, you figured well, it might not be and good. There was no two in and two out then. No, there wasn't any two in. There was one in. <laughs> you know, it kind of so McGee says, take a line in and do that. So uh, I take the line in, get it, get in there pretty good. And, uh, and the line goes up. And, uh, my pump operator had allowed um, had allowed the next big company to park on the supply line and run out of water. Well, that that's Fred's story. I had to uh, I had to kind of do some things to get water back flowing. But uh, the whole time I'm thinking, how am I going to tell mom that I killed Fred? <laughs> Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And joining me again today with the co-hosting duties is John Crosby. John, good to see you. Thank you for having me, Robbie. And I think you uh, know today's guest a little bit more background than I do, so I appreciate you being here and helping me out with this one. Today's guest is one of those legends in fire and EMS that I've wanted to get on here for the whole year this podcast has been up. I wanted to catch up with him while he was back here in Virginia or in my travel south, but we never seemed to be able to catch up. So today, with the help of technology, he's joining us via the interweb. Most recently, he retired from the fire chief's position in Horry County, South Carolina. He's also served as both the fire chief and the first EMS director for Hanover County, Virginia. He was part of the original flight paramedic crew of the pilot program known as EMS Med Flight One. That was the partnership between the Virginia State Police and Chesterfield Fire and EMS. And among other things, he's a licensed boat captain, a restaurant a restaurant tour and if i'm not mistaken he is still the reigning racquetball champion of the dutch gap swimming racket club so please welcome uh chief fred crosby fred how you doing i'm doing great robbie thanks for having me well we'll get into that uh dutch gap swimming racket club thing i'm sure before this is over with but um, oh yeah it's uh i'm, I'm infamous for that yeah I, I, yeah well, i I understand one of your retirement gifts uh kind of harkened back to that day. <laughs> it did it did the man yeah. himself <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's get started. And you know, um, obviously, Fred is John's brother, so uh, they kind of came up together in the rescue squad. So, John, please jump in where you see appropriate, or if you know any know any of the other stories, to go along with it and ask questions. But, uh, Fred, how did you get started in the business back in the day? Um, you know, the the whole thing was an accident for me, Robbie. I uh, I never really had any attention. John was uh, in the rescue squad, not. I thought he was a geek. I was on the high school football team, and uh, me and some of my friends were out uh, after summer practice riding around and uh, doing what we used to do back in the in the 70s, getting high and drinking beer. And um, we pulled up to an intersection, and I made a joke to one of my friends, said, hey, there goes your brother. You better jump out and run after him. And he did, and he got hit by a car. And uh, the rescue squad came, and some of the people I knew, John knew, were on there. And, uh, you know, here I was panicking and feeling stupid and uh, and out of control. And these guys came up, and they had to act together, and they took real good care of them. And uh, 
And uh, I said, you know, I, I think I want to, you know, learn how they do that. And uh, after that, John took me up the rescue squad and got me in, and that's how I got started. Yeah, the rest is history. So you started probably as a junior. In fact, I know you were a junior when I came along. So uh, yeah. is that where you were? Yeah. Yeah, I started off as a junior. Um, I started off at the age where the only thing, that was back in the days before Central Dispatch. And uh, the only thing the kids like me could do at that point, because I was only um, 15, uh, I'm sorry, 16, uh, the only thing we could do at that point before you were trained in, in the, uh, the high level of advanced first aid uh, was that we could, uh, we could answer the telephone and be a dispatcher. And uh, so uh, I came up to the rescue squad, John introduced me around, and they said, okay, there's a phone. If it, you know, this big noise goes off, answer it. And uh, I'll never forget my first call. It was a lady having a baby. And uh, we were all, you know, the Bay at Lakeside spent plenty of time in it. And uh, we were all out there just shooting the bull. And the uh, phone went off, and I ran over to the wall and answered the phone as professional as I could. Lakeside Rescue Squad calls me. And uh, what's your emergency? As they taught me to do. And the woman started screaming, I'm having a baby. I'm having a baby. And, uh, Everybody kind of crowded around me because they knew I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I, I just held the phone out to my brother there, John, and said, John, she's having a baby. <laughs> and he goes, you might want to find out where. <laughs> it was an auspicious start. <laughs> the first call, hey, find out where they're at first, and then we'll, we'll get them there. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> Well, you ultimately wound up being the, the president of the junior squad, and I think you wound up being a president of the whole squad, and as a senior as well, too. Didn't I did, um, yeah. I, and uh, spent a few years doing that. It was kind of it was great. Uh, it was great training for the real world, um, you know, and trying to um, trying to learn some leadership skills from a you know a dumb kid from Lakeside, and um, it uh, it taught me so much in life. I mean, I am so grateful for those those early days at Lakeside Rescue Squad for everything it gave me. I mean, it, truth is, I'd have probably ended up in jail if I hadn't um, if I hadn't fallen into the Rescue Squad and being around decent people. The crowd I was hanging with in high school wasn't exactly known for uh, for their altruistic ways, <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it kind of set me on the right path, got me straight, and uh, gave me a career that I absolutely loved every minute of. As I recall, your baseball team was best known for how many fights it won, not how many baseball games it won. It did. We used to sharpen our um, – we were the only uh, team that um, would sharpen our spikes, and uh, we were the only team that carried 23 um, um, scorekeepers to every game. <laughs> uh, it tells a little bit of something about what you were into then. Well, who, was, who were some of the um... – who were some of the leaders that you looked up to in the squad back then as a, as a young junior member coming along? You remember any of those names? Oh yeah. Um, you know, there were of course the guys in the junior squad that kind of raised me, John, my big brother, uh, Steve Wood, uh, Bill Berman, uh, Jim Murphy, when he came back from the military, um, uh, they were, uh, in the senior squad, there was Rudy Grissom taught me how to play pinochle. Uh, and, um, Walter Rogers, uh, who was a charter member of the squad and was still riding. He started in the 50s, and this was in the mid-70s, and he was still riding actively. And, uh, and I got to ride some calls with Walter. And uh, 
he was a he was a fascinating guy. He was funny uh, and and uh, he was great. Yeah. And what did you had you obviously graduated high school went on to work in the fire department in Chesterfield? How did that come about? Um, it, it it came about because um, I uh, I followed John <laughs> for years. I, I actually uh, I actually it probably took me till I was forty years old before I quit being John um, Fred John's brother Crosby. Uh, you know I, I used to joke that that was that was my name and uh, and it was because that's the way I was always introduced and that's the way it was. I followed in his footsteps um, very poorly. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that. Until I broke off on my own a little bit, um, and uh, and managed to make a name for myself. But uh, yeah, I followed him. He was a firefighter in Chesterfield, and uh, I followed him over there and I tested. And uh, Bob Eads, the chief of Chesterfield at the time, um, was kind enough to hire me. Uh, Eighteen years old, uh, youngest firefighter Chesterfield had hired till then. I I was only like eighteen and four months old at the time, and um, you know I. I had no idea. Like I said, it was all accidental. I never, you know, John had this quote on Facebook the other day about how um, luck is the um, result of, of planning and work. And I, I got to be honest, I, I had a ton of luck in my life and I didn't plan it down a second of it. Uh, <laughs> it just you need to give yourself credit because by that time you already had some experience with the squad. You were already an EMT. Uh, and, and you've never had a problem with an interview. No, I, I, I was always able to, uh, to the gift of gab uh, was uh, one of the few things God gave me. It was a real talent. All right, well, uh, going back to, to, I guess, your Chesterfield days, there's a couple of rumors out there, and I think John's mentioned them on one of these episodes we started with. Is, um, is there any stop, truth to the? I, I'm going to stop you right there. They're not rumors, they're facts. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, give, us, well, give us the rest. Of, how about the rest of the story about, uh, I don't know, a certain firefighter who ran a call in the middle of the night only wearing a pair of three-quarter boots and a bunker coat, no pants. Is that, is uh, that no, a... Just my tidy whities um, Yeah, I, uh, I had, uh, you know, when you, you did it too. Um, when we were young like that, our life was the fire department, and our days off, it was a rescue squad. And uh, I had gone to the rescue squad and pulled a 48 and uh, then come into the fire department uh, for work. And um, I had fallen asleep on the couch. I hope Chief Eames didn't listen to this. I had fallen asleep on the couch. And the statute uh, of limitations, was... I think you're okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and uh, sometime after I'd fallen asleep on the couch, I had gotten up and gone and got in bed and took my pants off. And uh, I evidently did it half asleep or all the way asleep and bells went off and I went down to get on the rig and thought I had been on the couch and didn't bother to put any pants on. And that was yeah, in the you, days of three-quarter boots. And uh, I woke you were up working from Mallow then? Yeah, I was working for Malaspino. And uh, uh, Malaspino was in the right front seat. You know, where he was a sergeant at the time. They didn't have a lieutenant. So, uh, the lieutenant was the station captain and sergeants were the, were the station lieutenants. And, uh, but, you know, by the time we got to the call, he was laughing so hard he couldn't talk on the radio. Because uh, Faison, who was with me, you know Dave another, Faison. Another um, character. Oh, God, what a character. Um, uh, he, had, he had, you know, told him through the, the pass-through uh, what was going on. And I woke up about halfway to the call, noticing I was cold in places I didn't, shouldn't be. And uh, I, so the rest of the ride to the call, I was trying to stretch them boots <laughs> and then <laughs> to see if I could make a match. And, uh, 
got there and Mallow Mallow said just sit on the damn rig. <laughs> so we'll be back. Yeah, we'll we'll get this without you. <laughs> so. Back uh back in them days, what uh what kind of calls were you running that maybe stuck out in your mind that uh you remembered for some reason? Uh anything that sticks out from a fire or a, I mean that was really before we started running EMS calls on the fire apparatus. So uh, anything that stucks out in your mind back in those days? Yeah, I mean we ran a lot of accidents um from the fire department there. Um we um we uh we ran a lot of brush fires and um that was before station 14. I was at number one in Chester. And uh, so we had the pike and uh, we ran a fair share of trailer fires um, back then uh, from it. And, um, you know, they, they all stick out in my mind pretty good uh, of it. We, uh, we actually saw a fair amount of fire. We, uh, you know, it's gonna sound funny when you compare it to today's world, but um, we were the busiest station in the, in the county and, um, we were running 700 calls a year, <laughs> a year, yeah. a year. You know, so it was like we were exhausted. You know, out, two, out of the two world. A day. Yeah. yeah, out of the world. Can uh, you know, can anybody be this busy? Uh, but you know, it was uh, it was you know we had Dupont at the time. Station Three was all volunteer at the time, um, and we had Dupont, so we still had the um, old Chemox uh, respirators. Um, and we had the brand new spanking um, uh, SCBAs that uh, that we were trained on. Um, but uh, you know, it, it was surprise, surprise airs back then, weren't they? Survivors. Yeah, they were survivors. And um, were you there when we had the MSAs before the survivors? No, they had just gone to the brand new survivors when I got there, John. Okay. And um, the cool thing that I remember. Um, we wanted to be FDNY so bad. Um, the, I mean, they, they were like our heroes, and we wanted to be them so bad. We, we read an article about how um, they were using the survivors because they were positive pressure as um, as diving masks. So we went and tried it. <laughs> and as long as you keep your head above your body, it works. <laughs> yeah, there's some uh, lesson learned. I'm sure somebody went, well, why isn't this working? Yeah, but that was before there was a dive team. I mean, it, it really was, um, you know, I, I actually think we were blessed. Um, we, we we were in the time period where we were still making up a lot of stuff as we went. So um, we, we got a chance to, to do things that you'd never get a chance to do today. Um, you know, we rode the tailboards and, uh, you know, and uh, old Start RC. up in the jump seats on the newer rigs. Yeah, jump seats on the newer rigs, but they were open jump seats. They certainly so you could stand up in them. Yeah, so they, you know, so, um, you know, and I, you know, I, I remember bailing off tailboards in the ice when the truck's sliding backwards down a hill and, you know, lots of fun stuff like that, that uh, would drive a safety officer just absolutely out of his mind nowadays. Well, where, where, what other stations did you work in when, uh, when you were there? You were, you said you were at one, where else did you wind up? You, you, you got to get to that tennis story, don't you? Well, well, you know, well, let, let's go back to how did you end up at number 12? How about that? Okay. I ended up at number 12. Uh, station 14 was being opened and, um, they decided that, um, I'm back that, name was like the, that was like one of the first stations that was built under Chief Ains, wasn't it? 
Um, yeah, I think so. One of the first brand new buildings. Uh, it was his pride and joy. And um, some some kids had gotten in there and done some vandalism before we had occupied it. And uh, so he sent a battalion chief down there who was um, not the bravest individual, um, but he sent battalion chiefs down there to spend the night when they were on shift to guard the station. And uh, um, Chief Eames did one of his infamous surprise visits. And uh, the battalion chief drew down on him. He was sitting there in his underwear with a gun in his lap, scared to death. <laughs> and the fire chief got that drew down on him. And, uh, and uh, so he decided battalion chief shouldn't do that anymore as the guard duty. So uh, he took the, uh, the ALS provider off each shift at number one. And he sent us down there and uh, we got a car and, uh, and we got a... Uh, um, we could go to the station for lunch and we could go on EMS calls. We were running EMS calls by then. And, uh, and that, that's all we could do. Uh, so you were alone in a firehouse for 24 hours. And, you know, to a, uh, what was I, 19 or 20 year old kid, that's not the most exciting experience in the world. And, uh, you know, idle hands <laughs> always find trouble in the fire department. And, and I sure enough did. And uh, so, you know, I was bored, so I went out in the bay and I started beating a tennis ball against the wall as my PT for that day. And um, uh, Chief um, Dazel, the assistant chief, and Chief Shorter walked in. And I still believe to this day my real mistake was hitting the ball one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Serving it up again, were you? Yeah, I was like, I should have quit while I was ahead. But but I went ahead and, you know, I was like, hell, I'm caught, you know. And uh, I banged it up against the wall. And uh, they they told me to stop that and find something productive to do. Um, and um, the uh, 7 o'clock next morning, I was in Chief E's office. And uh, I was number one on the sergeant's list at the time. I, I was removed from the sergeant's list, and I was transferred to Atrick, number twelve, <laughs> starting my next shift. <laughs> so now, now to be fair, oh, I had a written reprimand in my file. To be fair, remind me if I'm wrong. You had actually, when you started playing, painted one half of the couplings the first color for the station, and we're waiting for it to dry to paint the other half on the new hose. Yeah, I was saving that for my nighttime excitement. Um, so, so you weren't being completely unproductive. No, not. I mean, that's all I had to do there. That was my task for the 24 hours was to paint, I don't know, 20 couplings or something like that. So, you know, but, um, but no, I was, uh, I mean, I was guilty. I, I ain't gonna lie about it. Like, I, I did the deed. <laughs> yeah, so. so that's how you got to number 12. I, that's see, how I, I got I to number 12. There was a, there's another little bit of the story I hadn't heard. I didn't hear about the battalion chief before you got there. I didn't, I hadn't heard that. Story. Oh, you hadn't heard that part? Yeah. Offline, I'll tell you the name. Okay. I'll wait to, <laughs> wait to hear that. We'll keep that one secret, top secret. Yeah. Might, might have been one that really didn't like Jane Fonda. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think I might know. Yeah, that's what we call a clue. There you go. Some of the, some of the old Chesterfield folks who listen to this will probably go, okay, I got it now. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so yeah, uh, I got set number 12, but I tell you what, it turned out that was a huge favor to me. Um, I got, I got ladder experience for the first time and, um, and I got to work for the, one of the best company officers I ever worked for in my life, um, Kevin Spaulding, um, down there. And, uh, that man taught me so much. I mean, he really did. And, uh, you know, so it, it ended up being, a a uh, 
a gift, you know, disguised as a smack across the face. Yeah, to do that. Were you guys running much into Petersburg back then? We were, and that was the other great thing about there. We also got to see a little bit of fire. I mean, at that time, I was the uh, I was the only truck operator who ever got to put the ladder up at three different fires in one night. And none of them in our district. <laughs> All of them in the burg. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that was when Petersburg was burning pretty good, you know. And, uh, and so we, you know, it was, uh, it was, I don't know, a mile across the river into the burg. And, uh, you know, we, we were there. And, uh, you know, I, sp- I then spent, I don't know, two, three years in that trick. And, uh, and I actually loved every minute of it, except the drive. Yeah, that's all the way in the far end of the, yeah. far end of the county from where where I'm guessing you were still living it up in Lakeside at the time. I was living in Lakeside, and they they had we used to call them the exile stations. If you lived in Colonial Heights or somewhere, and you were bad. You got sent to Bon Air, number four in the north end, and uh, if you lived up, up north of the river, you got sent to Ettrick in the south well, end. You know, pay your pittance. Well, moving on from number 12, I, I, there's probably some other stories out there about a stake for D. Whitlock that uh, may or may not have touched the ground that I've heard somewhere. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. One. Yeah, that may or not. That was a 14. <laughs> was that, yeah. Yeah, uh, a lot of those stories, but uh, I do want to get to, uh, you know, you said you were there. That kind of, at least in my timeline, in my head, that puts about the 82, 83 timeline, and that's about when MedFlight came into play, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I left Ettrick to go to MedFlight. Um, how did that? How did that whole program get started? You since you were there in the kind of when it came about. What was what was the environment like then when that uh, that program kicked off? Uh, it, it was the Wild Wild West, uh, and um, Chiefine's always wanted a helicopter, and um, just like I, you know, there were some things I always wanted and tried over and over in my career, but never got uh, that I thought would be cool. Uh, he always wanted a helicopter, and the uh, you know Chesapeake County wasn't that big at the time. And they just were not going to buy a million-dollar helicopter for him. And uh, so he uh, he was tight with the aviation unit. I, you know, I think Chief Eames' background was uh, Air Force, wasn't it? Yep. Uh, and um, he uh, so he hung around the airport, knowing a lot of those guys. And the state police started talks with um, State EMS about, you know, starting a program uh, like Maryland had, a state police uh Helicopter program, air medical evacuation program, and they um, they um, they didn't know where they'd find the paramedics for it. So um, uh, Chief Eames heard uh, heard it on the rumor mill and uh, went and offered paramedics for it. Uh, and uh, so you know we get, we had this strange collection of people um, that kind of came together. To, uh, to start this new program and bring it to the Richmond Metropolitan, well, the Central Virginia. We flew all over Central Virginia. And uh, then they had, uh, they, they had uh, they got Dr. Gervin from MCB as the medical director. Uh, he was the um, chief of the surgical ER then. And um, they, uh, they brought us all together and uh, Chief Eames opened up. There weren't a lot of paramedics back then. There was a fair amount of cardiac techs, but there, there weren't a whole lot of paramedics. Uh, par- I think I was in the fourth paramedic program that was taught at yeah. MCV. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was still a fairly new animal. And um, so the, the competition, I mean, they, I, they interviewed us and they had, you know, um, 
panel boards and all that. But um, I think they pretty much needed all of us to work for the department. Uh, so I got a slot um, on it, and um, we we uh, we went through what we called phase. Paramedic used to be taught at MCV in two stages, and phase one and phase two. Uh, phase one was basically your cardiac tech, and phase two was the paramedic portion uh, in it. And uh, then uh, Dr. Gervin came up with this bright idea to have a phase three. So he brought us all into MCV for a month, and uh, and put us through a lot of a lot of the merit badge classes, um, ACLS, pre-hospital trauma life support, PTLI. Actually, we uh, we went through the advanced trauma life support that the residents were going through. Yeah, you're right. We did. Um, you're exactly right. And uh, and so they pulled they pulled us in there, and uh, we did that. Did uh, ER rotations and. Uh, Kind of cut our teeth. Uh, Gervin uh, gave us some new skills. Decided we were going to be, uh, you know, pushing some boundaries. Uh, we could intubate. Uh, we could do surgical trichothyroidotomies, not the needle trikes. Uh, we could do surgical chest decompressions. We could do pericardiocentesis. Uh, we and we uh, we could put in. We could do cut downs and put in very large bore, like eight French IVs. And uh, because, uh, you know, MCV is a research institution and we were going to be like the tip of the spear for the trauma research uh, that was he was planning there. And uh, so we went through that. Uh, we came out. We uh, we went uh, we then went on a rotation after we all learned to tie our shoes the exact same way for the pictures. <laughs> uh, we we actually did. We had a class, a full day class on how to uh, how to tie our boots correctly, so that we wouldn't embarrass Chief Eads of the pictures. And uh, after we had that in the grand opening, um, we started going out doing dog and pony shows. Um, uh, and um, Al was uh, Al was the chief flight paramedic at the time. And um, Al Thompson. We, Al Thompson. Yep. Um, and. Uh, we uh, our job was to go out and win friends and influence people, so that they would actually call us, and uh, it kind of took off from there. We, you know, we, um, they actually did start calling us, and it, it really, I think, was a whole lot because of the um, the extra tools Gervin gave us uh, to do that, because we were kind of like the gods from the sky. And I'm taking way too long. I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, yep. we, I got we, like 12 more hours of recording here, so you're good. Okay, so we would uh we we'd sweep in from the sky and do these fancy new skills that all the other paramedics in the region of the state wanted to be able to do, and uh, and we were kind of the proving ground for it. Well, Fred, I remember doing my first crike. I was scared to death. Tell us about your first crike. Um, my first crike wasn't nearly as bad as my first chest tube. That's a better story. Can I tell that's the one. That's the one oh, okay. I want to hear. That's the one I want to hear. I've heard this. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we had a we were using McSwain darts. Uh, Norm McSwain, the doctor, um, was like the god of trauma at the time, and he had invented a chest tube that was put in with a stylus in the in the insert, and I, you had to cut through the skin and and put it in. And um, we, they didn't come in in time for us to be trained on them. So uh, when we we did dog labs and uh, and uh, we did cadaver labs and. And, you know, we had been trained on the processes, but we hadn't been trained on this particular tool. So uh, me and Dave Nichols get 
a call up on the side of 64 uh, and fly up there. And uh, this guy's up there. It's got something to you so bad his eyes are closed uh, and all swole up. And I was like, hey, I'm going to have to do this. And they had come in that day. So uh, I put them on the helicopter as part of my morning check. So I pulled the thing out. I had to sitting on the side of 64, I had to read the damn directions on how I was going to use this thing. And uh, so I, you know, I get the knife out. And this is the first time I've ever cut. I mean, this guy was awake screaming, um, but it's the first time I actually took a knife to a person I actually cut uh, in their chest because you cut through and cut through the intercostal muscle, and then you'd use the dart to push the rest of the way through. And this guy, I mean, this guy did not like me taking a knife to him. I can't say I blamed him, uh, but he did not. He's screaming. He's screaming at me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're killing me. And, I, you know, I just lost it. I said, you ain't doing me no damn good either. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, I got through it and got the dart in. And, uh, and, uh, and, and thus, I was the first paramedic in Virginia to ever put in a surgical chest decompression. Um, and the guy actually ended up having a real good outcome. Um, thankfully, he didn't remember our exchange on the side of the highway, so I never got the complaint on that. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, and it, it was another one of those stories that became legend about me because Dave Nichols said, I don't want them boys operating on me. They got to read instructions. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, and in fact, I think that was my first day on the helicopter was Dave Nichols said, now, let me show you something. Here's the instructions just in case you need them. <laughs> <laughs> that would be Dave, yeah. Yeah, that was Dave. Yep. Well, you brought me on on that program. I, you know, I, I don't know if you remember the conversation you and I had. Um, I was in phase two of the MCV program, and um, I was working at number two at the time as a firefighter riding a tailboard of an R model Mac. And I think you caught me one day toward the end of the program and said, hey, would you be interested in uh, getting trained up in phase three and flying as a backup on the helicopter? And it took me about a half a second to go, absolutely, uh, count me in. And you said, okay, just uh, let me know when you get to registry and we'll go from there and you know, flash forward to after the registry, got my ticket in my hand. Hey, Fred, I got it. Here's my paperwork. You know, I'm ready whenever you are. He said, okay, I'll be back with you. And like the next week, you caught me at the rescue squad one day. He said, well, are you still interested? And I said, yeah. He goes, okay, you start on Tuesday. You're coming in full time. So <laughs> yeah. here, I, here I am, like about a seven-month cardiac tech, a couple of weeks worth of paramedic. And now you're going to, I'm going to MCV to work with Gervin for about a month before I get cut loose on the helicopter. And, now, you came on when Ernie came off? Yes. I, I took Ernie's place. Yep. 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 Uh, that was <laughs> – well, you know, I, I will say one thing about Bob Eads. Bob Eads used to have this rule that you were transferred at the pleasure of the department. And he had no qualms. If he needed you somewhere, you went there right away. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and when I told him, I need this I need this kid, Dawson, he's really good. He said, well, when do you want him to start? <laughs> Thank you for that, Bob. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, well, you, so, uh... You're talking about Bob Eads. My, uh, my med flight getting on the helicopter story <laughs> comes from that. You left to go to the trauma registry. I did. Okay. Yep. And Chief Eans came to me and said, how would you feel about going on the helicopter? And uh, I was a fairly new officer on an engine. I had an absolutely wonderful crew. And I said, Chief, I'm still learning a lot on the engine. I said, I, I think I'm in a good place where I'm at. I, I, I think I can, can learn a lot here and do a lot of good here. Uh, he called me the next day and said, we think you'll do a wonderful job. Yeah. So uh, that was how I got on the helicopter. Yeah, and you start on Monday. See you there. Yep. So, yeah, the way it worked. 
Well, let's get off a of med flight, and uh, ultimately you wind up going up to Hanover. How did uh, you know you were kind of groundbreaking some stuff up there with the, on the EMS side of the shop? What uh, what happened in Hanover? Uh, well, I, I went to the trauma registry. Um, after med flight, I would have killed to get on, and I would have killed to have gotten off. And uh, and I, I went to kind of like John did. I went I went to Bob Eanes and I said, uh, I said, Chief, Chief, I want off. And he said, Okay, I'll think about it. And he called me the next day and said, I've decided you can't. I said, well, What are my options? He said, You can quit. <laughs> I said, Yes, sir. And I thought about it for a couple of days, and I found they asked me to come to the trauma registry at State EMS and start that up. And I, I was like, That sounds pretty cool. I'm going to do that. And uh, I, I went. Went and uh, worked down in the uh, Monroe building down in downtown Richmond, one of the high rises, and uh, and went there and and hated every second of it. It was just, um, it was it was bureaucratic hell as far as I was concerned, and I was still a young guy, uh, never been an office sitter before. And these people would walk in, say hello to each other every morning, you know, at the same time, and go into their offices and close the doors. And uh, then at exactly 11.45, all the doors would open and they'd walk out and say, hey, where do you want to eat lunch? And they'd all walk somewhere to lunch. And then they'd come back and they'd close their doors. And then at 4.45, doors would open and everybody'd say, see you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, man, I can't take this uh, in it. And uh, so uh, I left there and, uh, and uh, Wheat Baldwin called me about a job in, in Hanover as a assistant. They, they couldn't. They wanted a uh, training officer and an assistant fire marshal, and uh, and they couldn't afford both, so they made a position that was both. And uh, and Wheat called me and said, "Hey man, you you know you want to come up here and be my assistant?" Wheat was a fire marshal at the time, and um, I was like, "Sure," you know. And I, I went up there and interviewed with Mike Harmon, and um, they gave me that job. And so I went up there and I. Half the uh, time I worked for um, Wheat in the fire marshal's office, and uh, and half the time I worked for Rich, Rick Birch as the training officer. Uh, and and um, I, you know Hanover, I had found home, and you know I was really there just about the rest of my career. And um, so I uh, I stayed in Hanover, did both those jobs until they split them. Um, then I did the uh, I was acting fire marshal for about eight months um, when they split them and, uh, and still did the training stuff. And uh, when it came time to hire somebody, um, Mike Harmon asked me, you know, which one you want? And I said, well, I'll do the training officer. And um, I ended up doing that for, oh, I don't know, another five, seven years. Uh, and the, uh, they decided to start an EMS department. And uh, I, I was like 28, 29 by the time, and you know, I said, I said, well, I'd like to do that. And so, uh, interviewed with Mike Harmon and the county administrator, and uh, and they picked me to do that job and it was to start a EMS department. And uh, you know, I walked in and said, okay, you know, what are your expectations to the uh, county administrator? And he said, I don't know, just figure it out. And uh, I said, what money do I have? And he said, we put. Um, we put $350,000 lump sum in a budget. You've got to go create some kind of budget. And uh, and that's how the EMS department started. And it was me and a part-time secretary. And um, my office was out at the fire training center because there was nowhere else uh, for it. And uh, 
you know, the fire training center in Hanover at that time was it was still real country. I mean, we used to have to um, we used to have winterize it. The bathrooms were basically an outhouse that had been plumbed to a real septic field. Uh, we used to have to winterize them in the winter, and if you had to go to the bathroom, you had to get in your car, drive to Ashland, and, and use the bathroom uh, in it. Uh, but yeah, I started that and worked. My job was to coordinate the the uh, four rescue squads that were there, and uh, you know, uh, they had the biggest thing when I walked in the door is they'd been fighting over territory, and I know you remember the old territory wars from Lakeside, uh, but they had been fighting over territory because um, territory's money, and uh, they'd been fighting over them for three years leading up to this. And uh, and I walked into the first meeting and said, okay, y'all got 30 days. Y'all figure this out or else I'm going to figure it out. And walked out of the meeting and uh, and they, they figured it out, solved their problem and put it to bed. And, um, so that was kind of my first success. County administrator said, hell, if I'd known, I just had to throw on 300000 out of it. I'd have done that five years ago. <laughs> so, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was as much as 300000 as the ultimatum of uh, they didn't want you to figure it out. For no, them. they didn't want me to figure it out. <laughs> But that's again where, you know, being in the volunteer rescue squad gave me the experience I needed because I understood how they thought and uh, and how they operated. And um, you know, one thing with all my travel that I I can say as a generalization is firefighters are firefighters, and EMS people are EMS people. And uh, it really doesn't matter where they're at in the country, what they are, they they share certain common characteristics you were able to at least understand the, the bulk of both sides of the coin. and Yeah, and I could understand where the negotiating points were and, you know, what to them was the, pers- the worst possible outcome. And the worst possible outcome for them was to be told what to do. And uh, they didn't want that. Yeah. You wound up getting the first EMS staff hired on up there too. Yeah. I, I did. Uh, we went um, – Couple, we floundered around a couple of years with just me and a part-time secretary, and um, we were missing calls, um, late calls, all the things that everybody's seen happen around the country uh, as, as um, two things happened at the same time. Uh, one of them was uh, volunteer manpower was diminishing, uh, and two of them was the call load was increasing. And so they, they compounded each other to the point where um, – you just couldn't staff well enough with all volunteers to uh, to be able to meet the call load. I mean, this was this was a rural community changing into um, a suburban community, and and a, as uh, one of the outskirts of Richmond, and they the call load was picking up so drastically. You know, it used to be people would let them off work, you know, and they could run an EMS call when it was only once a week or so. But when it's four or five calls a day, you're not going to pay somebody, a volunteer, to run EMS calls all the time. You just can't stay in business to do that. So, you know, they were feeling that kind of pressure. There weren't any hospitals in Hanover at the time. So it was like, you know, you pick up a patient in far Mechanicsville, it was an hour or two excursion to get somebody to the hospital and the crew back to the quarters. Yeah, it was was at least a two, two and a half hour process to run a call. So how did the – you know what were the what were the pain points with getting new new staff in when you brought those? Uh, and I'm, you know, in fairness, I was there for a good bit of that. I came on, I think, might have been your first full time hire, other than Charlotte. You're, I think she got full time before I came on, right? Yep. 
and then then we brought the field staff on. What were what do you think the biggest pain points were in getting that the career staff up and running with a volunteer system like that? Well, you know the um, there's a bunch of them. Uh, you know, it's 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 not an easy task at all to make that work. Uh, so uh, I had to choose the right people, and that that's part of honestly why I wanted you there um, was because. You had to have a personality. Um, what do we what do we used to call it on the uh, helicopter? High speed detente. High speed detente. High speed detente. Yep. Yep. And uh, so you had to be able to convince people to do things your way in a quick and non-insulting way. And uh, so the personality of the providers that I brought on were hugely important, and they they were the reason for the success of it totally. Um, you know, but the pain points were the typical pain points. Um, you know, the paid guys are going to take over. The paid guys are going to tell us what to do. You won't need us volunteers anymore. Uh, you know, uh, you had to work through all that. Uh, and, it, um, and, you know, then it, it matures through through different pain points as the process grows. Uh, and, it, you know, you get, you get to a point later um, where we were later in my career where you're trying to maintain a volunteer segment and you've got a thriving career segment. And, um, you know, there's an old book from James Page. John, you remember the title of that book? The Magic of 3 a.m.? No. Or was it one of the other ones? Managing EMS Systems or something like that. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, that that uh, he talked about the danger of paid staff to volunteers is they get too comfortable. And they start letting the paid staff make all the decisions and they start just taking the easy, fun jobs. And uh, so that was the, one of the main pain points later in the process of trying to keep volunteers is uh, you had to find a way for them to still have ownership and passion uh, and, and, uh, and for them to stay engaged in the, uh, the decision-making and all the other work that goes along with it. So that, yeah, I would say it was a, came out of success overall again you know pain points along the way uh bumps in the road or whatever the, may, the case may be but uh ultimately they wound up and i i left went back to chesterfield looking for promotional opportunities and you wound up the fire department at the time did not have any career staff other than the office staff and it, you know this was after i had left what, what went into the thought process of saying that we're going to do away with uh third service EMS agency and just put them all together as a fire department that runs EMS. How did that come about? You, you won't believe it. <laughs> yeah, I want to sound respectable here, Bobby. So the thought process was long and drawn out. There's a lot of critical thinking applied. <laughs> That's not the truth. The truth I, is... I'm uh, sensing sarcasm in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, the truth was my boss, um, the county administrator, Richard Johnson, one of the best bosses I've ever had in my life, um, was getting ready to retire in six months. And he said, I never have liked the idea of two separate departments. I don't think it's efficient. And I couldn't achieve it politically when we formed them. But damn it, I ain't got nothing to lose now. So on July 1, he called me and Mike and he said, on July 1, you're gonna be merged, figure it out. <laughs> and so we were like, yes, sir. And uh, we had our marching kind of... orders. We went out and we started going, how the hell are we actually going to make this work? 
Uh, it's kind of like the uh, district wars. You, you, you two can figure it out. I'm going to tell you how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, we started having a bunch of tons of meetings there and, uh, you know, and, and went forward with that. Um, you know, but we were lucky. I, I was lucky because when the politics of that got really hot, and I mean really hot, they had a, um, you know, Mike was smarter than me, Mike Harmon. Uh, and uh, he's like, well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll take the assistant county administrator job as the director of public safety and, and you be the chief. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it had gotten so contentious that there was actually um, one of the board members had actually um, talked him into having a, uh, an executive session. An executive, if you've never been a fire chief, executive sessions are dangerous. They're private. And uh, nobody knows what's happening behind closed doors. Nobody knows what's happening behind closed doors. And those guys let it all out in those things. I mean, that's where you get cussed out. That's where you get, and, uh, you know, that's where it gets real. And um, they had one, and, and this board member wanted me fired. And uh, my boss, Richard Johnson, uh, thank God, looked at him and said, he ain't doing nothing I ain't told him to do. If you fire him, you're firing me. And I tell you, that kind of integrity is hard to find in government. Hard. Oh, so that's somebody stand, standing up for their people right there. Yeah. And, uh, well. and so they lost that vote. Uh, not because I don't think they would have, wouldn't have just, you know, thrown me under the bus without a second thought, but because Richard was too good and they knew that. And, um, so, um, you know, we went through it, we lived through the blood and it was bloody. Uh, we, I mean, you know, I had volunteers doing, um, cheerleading. It's funny cause one of them came to the restaurant after I retired and we're actually pretty good friends now, but he was, he was doing a cheerleading thing in the bay of the rescue squad. F Fred Crosby, F Fred Crosby. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes, I guess the time heals the wounds, I guess. Yes, it does. I mean, like I say, we're all firefighters. We're all EMS people at the end of the day. Now, now Fred, you talk about that integrity uh, and this may be something Robbie, you want Robbie to take out later, but, but you got to prove that you were of the same cloth later on when you had someone wanting to lay off firefighters and you and bear went into a meeting that a lot a lot of people know about and told them that if firefighters were let go from uh, from hanover county that you and bear would be the first two gone yeah um we, we did um and you know i i don't bring that up because and rob you can choose how much of this you want to publish okay <laughs> i told um, you I'm, I'm pushing but, it all unless you say pull something so I don't uh, know. but that Honestly, that trip to integrity, when I'm totally honest with myself, I'm not sure I would have done if I was 10 years away from retirement. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, you're, you're a different man when you become bulletproof uh, in it and you have some freedoms uh, in it. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to make myself feel good and say, oh, sure, I do that. But, um, you know, there were some times I didn't dig my heels in and I, I lost some good people. And, uh, and I always regretted those decisions. And um, so that's why I say that kind of as a preface to this. But yeah, um, Bear and I were eligible to retire. Um, we were in the enviable position that they wanted us more than we wanted them. And um, 
they, uh, you know, we had a new board come in. That was that was when all the um, Tea Party stuff started, and uh, they were going to roll back taxes and roll back government growth and all that. And they, it was it was also at a time when economics was really tough, and um, they uh, they wanted layoffs uh, in that. And uh, Bear and I went into Rue's office, and uh, and I said, Rue, I'm I'm not I'm not going to lay anybody off. And he said, I don't, I don't, you don't have a choice. We've got to cut at least two people. And uh, I said, okay, the first one's me. And Bear said, and the second one's me. And uh, I said, you know, that saves you a lot more than, you know, two firefighter salaries. And uh, he said, well, no, you don't understand. And I said, no, you don't understand. <laughs> and he goes, okay, I understand. And uh, he called me the next day and he said, look, Cut this much money. I don't give a damn how you do it. <laughs> we'll make it work. And uh, so we were able to uh, to do that. And uh, you know it was funny because um, we we actually got so tight that we had to ration toilet paper for the station um, to make sure we made the budget. And, Thank uh, goodness there was no COVID going on back then because we were, uh, oh my gosh. And uh, and you know and some of the Firefighters being firefighters, uh, some of them had found posters from the the Soviet Revolution uh, during World War II, where they had actually had to ration toilet paper, and they put these <laughs> posters up all over the station. Of how I was the new <laughs> Lennon. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, that's true. Well, it, I'll tell you this: that's not the first time I've heard that story, John. It's um. Think it was Brett Williams that told me that when, uh, and I don't know if we got that part on the podcast or, or Brett and I had that conversation after the fact. But that's I, that that story is not lost on the people that are out there. So I've heard that from other folks too. Well, it was uh, I consider it one of the high points of my career. You know, you always have this dream of what kind of person you want to be, and on on your best days you achieve it partially, and that was one of those days. There you go. Well, it's, uh, we're getting kind of close to an hour. We don't, don't yeah, want to uh, go too long. Oh, heck, that, shoot. Like I said, I got I got 12 hours of recording time here. But uh, Well, uh, if I can throw one out, Fred, absolutely. do you want to tell Robbie about the early Chesterfield days when we used to work together on holidays and I almost killed you? That was going to that was gonna be a question, too. Did you guys ever get to work together in the fire station? I know you worked on the squad a little bit, but what about the fire station? Uh, we were never assigned to work together on the fire station, but we did. Um, um, John and I didn't have a big family and all that. So on every holiday, he and I would work for the married guys and the guys that had kids so they could be home on Christmas and Thanksgiving and those kind of things. And um, Christmas morning, uh, we worked Christmas Day together. At, uh, was it 11 there, John? Last staff? 11. Yeah, 11. Company 11. And uh, John was driving and I was riding the jump seat. And David McGee, <laughs> McGee, um, McGee. was um, our officer. And uh, I don't know, it was about three or four in the morning, uh, we get a call for uh, a house fire. And uh, we're first in, we pull up, and uh, this thing's blowing right up through the roof, uh, through a central staircase, uh, right through the roof. And um, McGee says, come on, and we grab a two and a half, and uh, we hit it from the window, and somehow I managed to have the aim to hit the uh, power box and send sparks about 300 foot in the air. 
And uh, they said, okay, we knocked it down enough. Let's go in and save students and do a search because there was a car in the driveway. Christmas morning, car in the driveway. You know, you figured, well, this might not be and good. There was no two in and two out then. No, there wasn't any two in. It was one in. <laughs> you know, kind of so McGee says, take a line in and do that. So uh, I take the line in, get it, get in there pretty good. And, uh, and the line goes up. And, uh, my pump operator had allowed... Um, had allowed the next big company to park on the supply line and run out of water. <laughs> John, did you let let that second do engine sit on park? Stop right there, right, right there. Hold it, right there. Well, that that's Fred's story. I had to uh, I had to kind of do some things to get water back flowing. But uh, the whole time I'm thinking, how am I going to tell mom that I killed Fred? <laughs> I don't think she would have cared. <laughs> So, yeah, so yeah when, when I came out, I, John and I had a very nice little brother-to-brother talk. Um, but, you know, that was also the uh, – I got lost in the bathtub on that fire. Because um, then, you know, I ran out of water, so I said, well, i got to do this search. So I went ahead without a line. And uh, I went up top of the steps and turned left and, uh, and started searching and uh, ended up falling in a bathtub and doing about 16 circles in the bathtub before I Forget that. Yeah, and then I found a crib with about twelve thousand stuffed animals, and so I'm looking at everyone, I'm beating them on my face, seeing face being seen in their baby. Sounds <laughs> a real person. Oh my god. Yeah. Now, were well, you also the guy that, on another time doing the search, you went into the bathroom and Jack Ball shut the door behind you doing his search? Oh uh, yeah, that, that happened else? to me. That happened to me. Um, and you know, I had a lot of people try to kill me. Maybe that was a hint. <laughs> 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 It really was. I mean, it, it, it's hard to imagine what those days were like, you know, um, when you look at how regimented and regimented and technical uh, things are nowadays. It's, it's really just amazing the advances they've made. And, uh, and you know, it's uh, it's so different. Than, and, it, yeah, when you were telling that story about, you know, your, your hose ran out of water, so you just dropped the hose and went upstairs and started searching and, and – nobody else there with you inside or outside. I mean, McGee's doing officer stuff. John's trying to get water to you and you go ahead and search a building. How many, how many times does that happen today? And I can't imagine it happening today. Yeah. But, Um, but the environment was a lot different than the environment was a lot different. I mean, we were considered expendable back then, um, you know, to a large extent and we probably were. (laughs) Yeah, and it was a day when your next closest help may literally be 30, 40 minutes away. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have a lot of choice. And, you know, the amazing thing, Robbie, is when I came down here, I came back in time. I came back to um, two-man engines. With the closest. Well, that was going to be my next one. See, when you stay down here, you're now outside of Myrtle Beach, near Myrtle Beach. And you yep. took a chief's job in Horry County, which is a big geographic county that includes part of Myrtle Beach. So. Uh, yeah, talk about that. You know, your your transition back down there. You said you went back in time. Yeah, I went back in time. I mean, and it was it was it was I was totally unprepared for it. You know, I I, I had this. <clears throat> you know, I'd had a successful career at that point. Um, kind of ended at the top of my game, and uh, you know, I thought, well, I'll just transfer that down here, and uh, and and I wasn't ready for it at all. Um, you know, I came down here, Horry County, South Carolina is the county that the city of Myrtle Beach is in. There are five cities in the county. 
the county is roughly the same size as the state of Rhode Island, actually a little bigger. Um, so I had 40 some stations and uh, only 200 firefighters. And um, so, uh, you know, the, the standard was a, a driver and an officer and the officer was a firefighter. And, uh, you know, and so the two and two out rule was problematic. Um, the idea of, and a lot of the county, like John said, your next closest help is 20 to 30 minutes away. Uh, a lot of the county is very rural. Um, the, um, you know, there are places in swamps here that uh, they say nobody but Indians has walked yet. Uh, and and I, I believe them. I mean, there's some there's some places down here that are way out uh, country, and um, so that was a real difficult proposition of figuring out how to how to bring what I had to um, to what they had. And you know, fortunately, we had some really great firefighters. But it was going back in time because um, there was a lot more bravery than there were resources. And um, so uh, fires got put out through things like what you're talking about. I mean, it was an everyday event for one firefighter to go in by himself. Uh, if, if he didn't, nothing would ever go out. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the scariest part to me was, you know, you studied high rises and you go to Chicago for the high rise instruction or you go to FDNY for the high rise instruction. And they, they're talking about two or 300 guys on the first alarm. And uh, we could empty all the cities and all the counties and only have 112 firefighters. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like, God, I hope that don't happen on my shift. And uh, and then one of the first fires I get is a uh, a, 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 a set of condominiums uh, that catches on fire. And we get this. There's a thing down here called um, um, Carolina Bay. And they're not bays, they're, they're low-lying areas that in the rainy season get um, wet, but um, in the dry season, they get um, extremely dry and they're full of wax myrtles that burn like nothing. And, uh, and they built along all these things. And, you know, years ago, they had this huge wildfire down here and uh, it started in one of those bays. And uh, I get called on a, on a Sunday that I need to come to a fire and, uh, I start leaving, and when I get there, 18 condominium buildings with 132 condos, individual condos, are all on fire. And uh, it was in 100, 112 people to work. At? 112 people for the whole county. Whole yeah, for the whole county. And we had other things going on, so we didn't get them all there. So um, you know, it was um, 40 mile an hour winds, 12 percent humidity. Um, so I mean, it was rolling. And, uh, you know, I, I literally had to drive my car through 60 foot of flames on the road um, to get to where the command post was. And I get there and the deputy chief's there and I, I look at him and say, you sure that's where we want to make our last stand? <laughs> and he says, I think we got it, chief. I think we got it here. So I said, okay, we're going to do it. And uh, we ended up stopping it. But, uh, you know, can you imagine fighting 18 buildings? 132 condos with about 65 guys. Um, that, that's what we had. And so that that was different. Um, the other thing that was in, 
hugely different here. And something we haven't touched on at all is the politics of being a fire chief. And uh, the politics down here uh, are unbelievable. Uh, are they, totally are they, you know, you mentioned them a little bit about Hanover. Are they different or is it yeah. just on a different scale? Well, you know, I, I really only had two exposures to politics in that position. One was Hanover and one was here. Hanover, I was graced with incredible bosses. Um, you know, like Richard Johnson, Drew Harris, those guys. When you walked in, uh, Jack Berry, um, when you walked to those guys' offices, they'd say, okay, what's the right thing to do? And then they'd say, all right, how do we achieve that politically? Um, you know, the opposite of that is what's the political thing to do? I don't give a damn about the right thing to do. And um, so I got to see both poles of that uh, here. And I was so trained to do the right thing, uh, or at least try to do the right thing, that uh, I just was totally unprepared for that. And the other thing is it's a blood sport down here. Um, politics are there. They're, um, you know, Virginia gentlemen are, are an amazing breed. They, they can tell you to go to hell and, uh, and you, um, at the end of it, you thank them. That's, um, that's high speed detente right there. Yeah. The Jerry high definition speed. of high speed detente. Um, they don't have the same level of, um, tact and, and grace. So I was totally unprepared for it. I didn't know how to play the game. And, uh, you know, I decided it was better at this point in my life to, uh, take the beating and fall on my sword than, uh, than to, um, the way I put it when I was asked one time to compromise my values is I'm, I'm too da- I'm, I'm getting old. I'm too damn close to God to be doing that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can see the day when St. Peter's going to be asking me questions. So, um, yeah, I decided I wasn't going to do that. But I got to tell you, as a whole, the firefighters and the people are just like anywhere else I was. They're great people. Uh, they're the kind of people I was graced to stay around 40-some years of a career, and, uh, and I'm thankful for all of it. Well, Fred, we, we talked about the politics maybe being the low part when you moved down there. Uh, let's talk for a second about what may be the high point of your time in Ori. Uh, you got to fight fire with your daughter. I did. That was cool. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, Rob, you got kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know how this is. Um, you know, I, I had I had um, four girls, and uh, one of them was uh, the outgoing tomboy um, who was afraid of nothing, would try everything. The second one was the shy, reserved, sensitive one who was scared of everything. You know, wouldn't want jump from the high dive, wouldn't do none of that stuff. And uh, and that that's the one that her junior year in high school comes up and says, "I'll sign up for EMT next year." What? <laughs> yeah, I didn't picture you as one who would do that. Um, and she took EMT in Hanover, uh, graduated high school, came down here and got into the fire department, did firefighting classes, and was a volunteer. And uh, we were sitting here one night at dinner, and we get an apartment fire. And uh, you know, I got to uh, I got to drive her there, and and we got to fight a little fire together. And that, that's probably the coolest day of my of my life, you know, doing that. So, and she's. Uh, on, she's- yeah, right. she's on the job now somewhere, isn't she? She is. Um, she's a paramedic. Um, she's uh, she had um, she had become pregnant last year, um, and 
during that time, she got off the ambulance and she's working at a, a doctor's office and teaching uh, paramedic at the community college down there in Savannah. Uh, and it, but I think one day she'll go back to it. You know? Yeah. Sounds like she's got in the blood like a, like a couple of other the Crosby family. I, I kind of yeah. know got in their blood. We have a limited skill set, Robbie. There's not much else we can do. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Others call it a passion for the for the service. How about that? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, Fred, I appreciate your time. I'm going to ask you kind of one more question, uh, and then we'll kind of wrap this up and let John say anything. If there's anything I missed that we ought to talk about, but uh, certainly a career that long, we can probably get – one day I'd like to get maybe you – you two, Al, Ben, a couple of the old med flight guys together and do an episode in person and talk about some of the med flight stories because the, the McSwain dart story is just one of many that yeah. uh, we could share. share. So, uh, Will you let me know? I'd drive to see them guys. All right. Yeah, heck yeah, we'll do it. Um, so the, the question I got for you is, uh, you know, after all these years in the service, um, let's say you get an opportunity to, te- to talk to the next recruit academy that's finishing up their school and getting ready to start their career. Uh, what what's one piece of advice you think you would give them uh, going into the job and into the field that uh, would serve them for and make their career as long as yours? Um, I think the first thing anybody good at this job has to realize is it's not about them. It's about everybody else. And um, that's really the only attitude to have in this job, to, um, to face some of the pressures that it gives, to survive long term, um, and and not to succumb to some of the things that we see nowadays, like PTSD and all that. Um, it it it's really about the people you serve, and I think you have to have an attitude of there, but for the grace of God, go I to the tragedy that you see on a daily basis. And uh, you know, I was always I was always blessed with a really bad memory. I mean, you have to jog my memory to talk about calls. Um, so I never really had any of these issues that we see so paramount today. Um, but I also was always blessed with the attitude that, damn, I'm lucky. You know, that could have been me, you know, instead of me, you know, I was able to internalize it that way. So that, and the the second thing I'd say is, um, do the right thing. I know that sounds cliche and, uh, and, um, you know, kind of flippant. Actually, and you know, people say, "What the hell? What the hell's the right thing is?" Well, the truth is, we all know in our gut what the right thing is. We were all raised: you don't lie, cheat, or steal. You don't, you know, you do the right thing. And uh, and the right thing in the fire service is you serve other people. And um, I say that if you want a long career, because I screwed up funny. And the only thing that saved me long term is I always tried to do the right thing. And so people gave me a lot of slack. They'd say, they'd say, yeah, the boy did something stupid, but he's trying. He's trying to do the right thing. <laughs> Interesting stuff. John, you got anything to add? Or no, ask? no, I think we're good. I, uh, I didn't bring up any of the embarrassing stories on Fred, so we'll leave those for another time. Yeah, we'll, we'll get those in person, and then uh, then we'll have the official paywall for the podcast and we'll charge <laughs> charge admission for that one. That sounds good. <laughs> All right. Um podcast question are you a pay on patreon am i no okay nope it's all kind of it's still a hobby at this point um i don't know if, uh, maybe if somebody came up i was said, gonna hey, put in a plug and get you some money if we were tell everybody to go nah, to the patreon page i have not it's uh you know if we get a 
Uh, there's a couple of organizations out there that I would love to have sponsorships from, mostly because it's uh, products or or services or uh, missions that uh, I think we would in, any of us would be uh, kindred to support. But if they ever showed up and said, "Hey, we'd like to support it," I'd certainly certainly welcome that. And hey, if you're listening, you can send me an email at firehouselogbook <laughs> at gmail dot com or uh, follow along on uh, Facebook and that's kind of where he puts himself in that Fred I don't know if I, I haven't told you yet but I stole some uh, photographs from your Facebook page and uh, oh, put them cool. up there too so so they'll yeah. uh, people will be able to see what you look like since we're not doing this via video yeah and uh, make sure you subscribe and follow along on the podcast did, as well did so you feel uh, the one with me and Brad at the fire show when I was 20 something and I looked decent I'll try to. I'll see if I can get that one. Okay. I heard the Johnny Gage stash. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is. It is the 50th anniversary of emergency that happened uh, yesterday. Was the first airing. So uh, yeah. yesterday, the day before. So uh, it's hard to believe it's been 50 years. But uh, well, Fred, any any closing remarks? Anything to close it out? I was, uh, Robbie, it was a blast, man. I would love yeah, to have so a beer with you again before we end our time here. We're that guaranteed. We're going to do it, man. Next time you're up here, next time I'm driving south, uh, we'll be sure and do that. Thanks, uh, thanks again for your time, John. Thanks for joining us. And uh, and Fred, don't yeah. disconnect. Till you see the green light. Yeah, yeah. Don't disconnect. Someone hit the stop.